Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 169 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another installment of our Breaking Bloody series, where we've been carefully disassembling the Bloody Mary cocktail and examining each component in detail to see how precisely it works. In the past two installments, we spoke with tomato expert Craig LaHoulier about varieties of tomato experience, and we hit up bartender and cocktail author Brian Bartles to break down the history and competing origin stories of this ubiquitous brunch time sipper. This time around, we're getting funky, savory, and a little bit fermented with the condiment that nobody can seem to pronounce, Worcestershire sauce. By the way, that's how you pronounce it. You say the name of the second biggest city in Massachusetts, Worcester, and then you pretend somebody just asked you if you'd like a stick of gum, and you just say, sure, Worcestershire, easy. And speaking of pronunciation, we have a quick message from our listener, Nelson, who hit us up with a little pronunciation correction from our last Breaking Bloody episode. Here he is. Hi, Eric. It's Nelson from San Francisco. Love the podcast. On your latest episode, I heard you mention a drink, the Micheleta. As a native Spanish speaker, this caught me way off guard, and it actually took me a second to figure out which drink you meant. The correct pronunciation for the drink is Michelada. Just wanted to put that out there for future reference. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Thanks for setting us straight on the Michelada, Nelson. And now it's time for me to introduce the other voices you'll be hearing in this episode. First up, we have Brenda Iyer. Hi, my name's Brenda Iyer. She's the editorial lead at Food52, which is a digital publication and community platform designed to bring cooks together from all over to exchange recipes and to support each other in the kitchen. Next, we have Kate Quartaro. Hi, I'm Kate Quartaro. She's the founder of Colonel Pabst Worcestershire Sauce, which is a Wisconsin-based company that uses a formula designed by Kate's great-grandfather, Gustav Pabst, son of the Pabst Brewery founder, Frederick Pabst. We're also joined by cookbook author, food podcaster, and Italophile, Katie Parla. Hello, I'm Katie Parla. She's here for her expertise in the umami-laden realm of anchovies and fermented fish sauces. And finally, I'm joined for this episode by my Breaking Bloody producer, Sarah Baker. She's here to taste through a number of different sauces on air and help me untangle the somewhat mysterious origins of Worcestershire sauce. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Eric. So obviously this episode, we're talking about a very specific aspect of the Bloody Mary flavor experience, and that is a little thing called umami. Are you familiar with this term? I am. And it's kind of funny that you call it a little thing because from the research that I've done, um, it's really interesting from what I at least I could pick up on it. Um, it wasn't until I think the early 80s where people decided to give it attention and actually call it the quote unquote fifth flavor or taste experience, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I've tried so much to learn about it to, you know, understand its origin and, and how it came to actually be recognized and, and what it truly means. But every person that defines it, it's a little different and it's hard to really pinpoint 
what exactly it is. Yeah, it is a little bit tricky because, you know, what it, what the the term refers to is is the presence of a, of a molecule called glutamate. And when I think about the tastes on the tongue, sweet, sour, etc., one of the things that I like to link it back to is sort of our evolutionary heritage. And one of the cool things about umami is that it signals the presence of a protein as opposed to something like a sugar or, um, you know, something that might give off a sour aroma might indicate something like bacteria, for example. So like rotting fruit can, you know, kind of have that, uh, have that sour flavor, which is when we say the milk went sour, it's a bad thing. Um, but, but glutamate always signals some sort of like more often than not protein, which is good for us humans as we evolved. So, uh, in that respect, it's a very important taste in our evolutionary heritage, and uh, it's also just downright delicious. I think people are obsessed with it these days because if you pay close attention to umami and the various kind of little ways you can tweak it in food and drink, uh, you can really get a lot of dividends. Um, do you consider yourself an umami lover, or are you more of like a sweet tooth person? Unfortunately, I fall under both categories. <laughs> um, I do love, though, the experience of like a really nice, rich broth. Like I love soup. And I'm pretty sure umami, its presence in broth and like those more savory foods and, and even beverages and like maybe some beers. I, I don't I'm not sure. But its presence there, it it warms it up. And I feel like it's really important um, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, the nice thing about umami is that often it comes not just with flavor, but all, but with some textures, especially if it's being derived from animal proteins. Um, there are ways, as we'll find out later in this episode, to get umami into your food or drink without the use of animals. But um, often, as you kind of reference the stocks or the broths, uh, there there's some animal component to it. And uh, yeah, so I... I, I imagine then that if you're both a umami and a sweet person, you're a big fan of like chocolate covered potato chips and stuff like that. Yes, absolutely. I just love weird combinations of flavors where you experience two incredibly polar opposite things at once because it, it makes for such an awesome, almost ratatouille-esque um, eating experience. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. No, oh, totally. Well, uh, luckily for us, the Bloody Mary is a perfect vehicle for that type of experience where you can sort of juxtapose things and pull little levers and, and, and twist certain little knobs up or down in order to get the exact flavor experience that you want. So uh, super stoked to be here with you for this episode. Uh, and with that, let's jump in to Breaking Bloody Part 3, Umami Tsunami. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll know that I like to work my way through questions methodically, step by step. And that means we need to begin with the question, what is Worcestershire sauce? For that, we go straight to the source, Lee and Perrins, which is a sauce company now owned by the larger Kraft Heinz Corporation, who were not, definitely not interested in replying to the emails we sent them asking to appear in this episode. So taken instead from the Lee and Perrins website, here is the origin story claimed by the brand. Quote, the story of Lee and Perrin's famous Worcestershire sauce begins in the early 1800s in the county of Worcester. 
Returning home from his travels in Bengal, Lord Sandis, a nobleman of the area, was eager to duplicate a recipe he'd acquired. On Lord Sandis's request, two chemists, John Lee and William Perrins, made up the first batch of the sauce. Lee and Perrins were not impressed with their initial results. The pair found the taste unpalatable and simply left the jars in their cellar to gather dust. A few years later, they stumbled across them and decided to taste the contents again. To their delight, the aging process had turned it into a delicious, savory sauce. Soon, Mr. Lee and Mr. Perrins began bottling their special blend of vinegars and seasonings. Without any kind of advertising, in just a few short years, it was known and coveted in kitchens throughout Europe. End quote. We're going to return to this history in a big way later on in the episode because I was able to dig up some truly interesting information that might cast some doubt on it. But first, Sarah and I need to get our palates acclimated to the umami flavor with a condiment that might be considered Worcestershire adjacent, soy sauce. So Sarah, we are here not only to produce a podcast, but also to do a little tasting. Are you excited? I am nervous and excited. That's good because um, we've got some some pretty impressive sauces lined up here before us. Uh, for the listener, what we're doing here is is a little tasting through some of these flavors that we're talking about, so that uh, so that we can just kind of walk you through it in more of a sensory way. Now we're going to start with what I like to think of as a control, which is soy sauce, and uh, we both have here in front of us, Trader Joe's low sodium soy sauce. Uh, so we're, we're very consistent on that. And um, Sarah, I don't know if you're familiar with the tasting, but usually what we do first is we nose these things. So can you just nose the soy sauce, just take in the aroma and tell me what you smell? Um, is it weird to say sharp? No, that's that's a very good tasting note because, you know, it, it's it's a little bit abstract, but, you know, you can take something like that, like a sharp, and work your way into it. So... Yeah, it it is it is sharp. I would agree with that. Any do you get any food notes out of it besides obviously soy sauce? I mean, obviously it brings me back to sushi. I love sushi and so it it kind of pairs well with with that in mm-hmm. my head, but uh Yeah. Other than that, no other foods kind of like immediately come to my mind. It's a hard aroma to describe because it's a little bit bready to me. It, it smells a little bit like rye bread soaked in butter. Oh. Um, it has it has a, oh. a bit of a sweetness to it. I think it's not like it's not like a confectionery sweetness, but you can tell that there's probably some sort of sugar in here somewhere. Right, right. And then, of course, soy sauce shares something in common with these other sauces that we're tasting today in that it is fermented and fermentation is a really exciting thing that we're going to jump into in this episode. Um, it really transforms flavors. So why don't you take probably a very small taste since soy sauce is very salty and intense. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm. So we've got soy sauce. I, to me, that's a very briny taste that goes straight to the back of the tongue. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sit on the front. Like, it hits you right when it enters your mouth. It's not something that kind of blends into the mouth. It's more so like an immediate snap in the face mm-hmm. kind of taste. Um, yeah, it's a bold. That's the best word I can really give it. Mm. So... This is soy sauce, and throughout the episode, we're going to kind of pipe in our tastings of 
two different Worcestershire sauces, one that's a little bit more mainstream, and then one that is actually produced by one of our guests on this episode. So folks, stay tuned for more tastings. There you have the first of three tastings we'll do in this episode. If you'd asked me before this if I'd ever been nosing soy sauce out of a Glencairn glass, I'd probably call you crazy, but weird things do happen when you dive down rabbit holes like this one, and you just gotta go with it. So, now that we've set the tone with soy, let's turn our attention back to Worcestershire. Now, in terms of what it's made of, the ingredients list includes, taken again from the Lee and Perrin's website, distilled white vinegar, molasses, sugar, water, salt, onions, anchovies, garlic, cloves, tamarind extract, natural flavorings, and chili pepper extract. But what does that mean for flavor? Here's Brenda Iyer with some initial thoughts. So my impression of it, and um, I want to be very upfront and say that I am a lifelong vegetarian, so I've actually never tasted plain Worcestershire sauce on its own. And I mean, I've probably accidentally eaten it, um, but I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to make substitutes, mainly so that I could enjoy some of the the sort of flavor components of it and increase, like improve my cooking as a result. So I'll start with that and say that the, the thing that I think people love about Worcestershire and that I have loved about substitutes for Worcestershire is that it includes all of the five elements of flavor. It's, you know, it's sour because of tamarind and vinegar. It's sweet because of molasses and raisins. It's um, savory because of the anchovies and garlic and salt. Um, and it's it's kind of bitter uh, because it's like funky and fermented. Um, so it really has something for every side of your palate, and it just wakes everything up that you put in, in put it into. Uh, so. I think that's what makes it so versatile and good because it literally links to every yeah flavor component that you're cooking with. With all those ingredients and with all that flavor going on, you know that Sarah and I were excited and maybe even a little apprehensive to taste the Lee and Perrin's Worcestershire sauce. Here's our take on the tasting. Sarah, you and I are about to taste what is probably, not probably, the most iconic Worcestershire sauce Lee and parents, are you excited? I am. You know, this historic sauce, I've heard a lot about it, but I've never tasted much about it. So I'm ready to dive in. Well, certainly on its own, but uh, I, you know, I'm willing to bet you've probably had it in something like a burger or something, but it's, it's one of those things that people tend to use as the secret sauce and just kind of let it slide in under the radar. So what do you get on the nose for this sauce? Oh, immediately... Right off the bat, I, it reminds me of steak for sure. Totally. It's like it gives me a very savory smell. Like it smells almost warm. Ooh, I like warm. It's got an A1 vibe for sure. Like, right, right. Like, I don't know if I, I, I'd probably be able to tell you that they were two different aromas, but I don't know if this was put right next to A1 steak sauce, if I'd be able to tell you which aroma was the A1 steak sauce. Right. For me, I get a distinct vinegar aroma, which mm. is certainly one of the ingredients here. And vinegar uh, as an acid, acetic acid, is something that would be considered volatile, meaning that it gives off aromas, whereas something like citric acid is 
not volatile or much less volatile. It's not giving off those intense kind of vinegar stank molecules. So that's, I think, why we get the vinegar on here so strongly. And there's almost something fruity in the background to me. Do you get anything that's sort of like soft or fruity? Right. I can kind of, I can kind of get that soft, um, like I wouldn't say light, but definitely a fruity aroma hinting towards the back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and sometimes, sometimes when you taste something, especially if you're looking down into a glass, you can almost imagine the aroma like a circle where it's got a, a, usually some, some sort of a denser core. And then as you bleed out towards the edges of that aroma, you start to get some of the other aromatics. And toward, toward, towards right. the edges of that aroma is where I'm getting the, the fruity note. How about we uh, take a, a little taste? All right. Whoa. Wow. I, oh my. <laughs> <gasps> okay, I'm going to get some water here. That is uh, that is intense in a way that the soy sauce was not. Yeah, you know, it's funny whenever people are eating stuff with soy sauce, they're like, oh, like, don't eat it alone, you know, and then getting a spoonful of this, it made soy sauce seem calm. Um, mm-hmm. This really just, like, zapped me in the face. Um, it's, like, all over my tongue. It was... It was much more bold than soy sauce, and I can taste a lot of spices. I can tell that there's a lot of spice in this. Yes. Um, I'm not sure which ones. Yeah. It, it's sort of, it, it gives you a bit of a newfound respect for what this ingredient is. I mean, so a couple of things that I get, I mean, to, you're totally right on with the spice, and, and I actually have even since taken a sip of water, and the spice is still in my mouth right now. So that that's an, that's a really interesting thing that I don't know that I would have assumed about Lee and Perrin's Worcestershire sauce, but a couple of the things that I'm getting, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that I know what ingredients are in this, or at least some of the, the major ingredients, you definitely get red onion. Red onion is a very, like, volatile, like, you, you crack open a red onion next to a regular Vidalia onion, night and day difference between the aroma and the flavor. So I get a ton of red onion, which maybe is contributing to that spice because it is a bit of a spicier flavor. And then I get almost like a little bit of clove. Mm. It's definitely sort of like the clove is something that lingers on the finish. Now, I don't know if this is something that tastes like clove or it's actual clove, but I don't have a hard time believing that there's some clove in here. And, and to me, um, I don't know about you, but this is this is an extremely well-rounded and really dynamic flavor, actually, compared to the soy sauce. Yeah. Like, I know that there are many, many ingredients in Worcestershire sauce, but it's interesting. The more it lingers in my mouth, I'm kind of picking up the things that you're mentioning, right? Like how you can taste the clove. Um, I, I can immediately taste that vinegar still. Um, and there's... There's so many hints of different things that kind of pop up to the top that I I wouldn't expect to be so prominent. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the things that sets Worcestershire sauce apart from something like a soy sauce, whereas a soy sauce is sort of a single stream flavor. A Worcestershire sauce is almost like a master sauce. It's almost like something that somebody sat over a stove and fussed over for a long time. And when it hits your palate, it's just like a it's a it's a much more layered experience. So I'm glad that we did this. And uh, you know what? I'm excited to come back and taste 
one more sauce that's actually a craft version of what Lee and Perrin's is. But you know what? Just because Lee and Perrin's is the ubiquitous condiment that you'll find in every major grocery store doesn't mean it's the only game in town when it comes to umami sauces. I jumped on a call with Kate Quartaro about the story and ingredients behind her Colonel Pabst Worcestershire sauce, which also has some really, really cool historical ties to American drinking culture. To start with, um, my mother um, was raised by her grandparents. Her, her grandfather was Colonel Pabst, who our Worcestershire sauce is named after. And um, they are uh, from the Pabst family, the Pabst Brewing family. So um, they were big on cooking with beer. And I learned that from my mother. And she she got this Worcestershire sauce recipe from from her grandparents' kitchen. So um, I grew up with my mom. She, she didn't make it a lot. It's kind of a complex recipe, but, um, but I learned from her. And, and I'd like to say that our family uh, is probably as expert as anyone out there on using beer to cook with. And that's the base of the sauce. So um, that, that's, that's kind of my family history and where this all came from. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, the the grandfather figure, your great grandfather, Colonel Pabst. Um, could you just give us a little bit more background on who he was? Uh, I suppose his relationship to the beer industry and brewing. Obviously, anybody who's familiar with PBR or Pabst Blue Ribbon probably has a little bit of an idea of how that comes into play. And then, I suppose, how beer has anything to do with Worcestershire sauce? Um, sure. Um, I'll start, I'll start with Gustav Pabst. He is Colonel Pabst and he, um, was the oldest son of Captain Frederick Pabst for whom Pabst Brewing Company was named. Um, and after Captain Frederick Pabst, uh, passed away, Gustav became president of Pabst Brewing Company, um, in Milwaukee. So, Anyhow, uh, he, he served in that um, role up until Prohibition um, became, and then, you know, the brewery went into all different kinds of things just to sort of stay afloat. Um, but anyway, um, he he was married to Hilda Lemp, who is also from a famous brewing family uh, down in St. Louis, Lemp Brewing. And the two of them... Um, had a cook from Germany, and and they also themselves spent a lot of time in England. And I'm not sure, but we kind of suspect that they may have gotten uh, the Worcestershire sauce recipe in Britain because that's that's where it originated, um, and that would have been back in in the later 1800s. So fast forward. Um, they have a big house in Milwaukee with a German cook, and uh, and they just use beer in just about anything. Uh, original Worcestershire sauce was made with malt vinegar, and this beer, the beer recipe, replaces a, a big chunk of that malt vinegar with um, beer, which is malt. You know, so it it produces a much smoother tasting Worcestershire than something that's 100% vinegar. Um, so hopefully that kind of answers that question. One quick follow-up on that. So 
I imagine that in the process of creating the Worcestershire sauce, that the alcohol is mostly or entirely boiled out of that beer. Is that correct? That's correct. It's boiled out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to summarize, what we have here is a German brewing family living in the Midwest with some ties to England where they have supposedly picked up uh, or rather where they have likely picked up this Worcestershire sauce recipe. And then by replacing some of that malt vinegar with the pre- I guess, vinegar fermentation base, which is simply beer, what you're saying is that you've got a slightly, what we might call less acidic Worcestershire sauce that, I mean, you know, knowing what I know about German food, it's, it's often tangy, but not so bright and acidic. So it kind of makes sense that this German family is modifying the traditional British style Worcestershire sauce in this way. Does, does that, do you agree with that? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, I couldn't have uh, said it better myself. And, and it's also interesting, I'm going to uh, note, with, with, the Worcestershire, with the Colonel Pabst Worcestershire sauce, um, we do not use PBR. A, a lot of people think that we would. Um, I ended up, once I knew I wanted to, to take this, this sauce to market, um, I went to the Seibel Institute of Brewing, which they have a campus in Munich and a campus in Chicago. And I went down to the Chicago campus and took a, a class on the different compositions of beers and how they impact food um, and learned that an all malt beer, when it's cooked down, it turns, it, it, it becomes kind of a beef flavor which is perfect for Worcestershire sauce. So I went back to uh, a, a craft brewer here in Milwaukee, Lakefront Brewery, and um, talked to them, and we found their all-malt amber lager. So it's it's really long on malt, a little bit less on hops, and it, it's just a beautiful base for the sauce. That sounds incredible. Um, it, it really does tie in nicely with with our umami episode here because i was completely unaware of that little factoid that you just dropped with the the boiling down of the beer and the almost like the the beef like umami flavor that comes out of that so um this is a really fascinating sort of detail to add to this conversation and i guess where i will go next is slightly away from beer to ask you what other quality indicators you look for in a Worcestershire sauce, since obviously what you do is you pr you produce one that is sort of in in the craft or you know sort of premium space, at least as far as sauces go. Okay, well, well, you hit on the umami part of it, and and that this sauce screams umami. Um, it, it's got so many depths um, of flavor. Um, that, that I would say that, that that's what I look for. We we start with a beer, and then it has a very high vinegar content, um, and we add 20 other all-natural ingredients, and, and they're high-quality ingredients. It's got anchovy. It's got crushed cinnamon sticks and whole mustard seeds and curry. Um, it, it, it's a long list, whole peppercorns. So this all has to be brewed to together, and then... Um, when it's finished brewing, it needs to be strained. And 
after that happens, it's, it leaves really a rich sauce. So if you compare it to something that you're used to getting off the grocery store shelf, you'll find that the Colonel Pat's Worcestershire sauce is much um, richer and thicker. So we like that because it, it you know, Bloody Marys can kind of end up uh, being a little bit watered down if, if you put them on ice. And this is kind of a, a something that isn't as as runny as you know your usual Worcestershire sauce. Um, the other thing is we use it all the time on steaks and burgers and as a condiment. And you know it it, it um, it's hearty. It stays on there. It doesn't just you know run off as soon as you pour it on. So um, I look for that. Um, it, you know, and it's all natural. Um, the anchovies are sustainable. The salt that we use is, is sea salt. Um, the soy that we use has no preservatives or anything like that in it. So it's really a high quality, all natural sauce. And I think uh, a lot of people, including myself, just feel feel good about using a product that, that can um, check all those boxes um, this day and age. Yeah, that's certainly important. And one thing that I really want to key in on with what you were saying is the textural element, because I, I think that texture in a Bloody Mary is really important. Of course, you know, along with the different ingredients that people like to customize to their own tastes, you know, one of the one of the real questions in the Bloody Mary I guess, creation story in terms of what you prefer is, you know, do you want something that you can sort of easily sip through a straw or do you want something that's a little bit hardier that maybe you just want to kind of sip straight from a pint glass? And, and it seems like having a condiment in there in the, in, in the form of Worcestershire sauce, even if it's just that little amount, it can really affect the mouthfeel. So, uh, you know, personally, my experience with Worcestershire sauces is generally that they are, if not completely a liquid, verging on a liquid and, and they sort of run all over the place. And, and I tend to, as a result, not use them topically on things like burgers of I'll, I'll use it when i'm creating the patties but but i certainly wouldn't use it like on its own as a condiment all that often so it seems like there's some real opportunities in that space with the colonel paps absolutely absolutely it it um it, it definitely lends itself to, to more of a, a topical condiment than than your typical grocery grocery store brand after hearing about the special malt and spice-driven flavor profile of Colonel Pabst Worcestershire sauce, you know that Sarah and I were ready to put it to the test. Here's how it went. Sarah, final tasting of the lineup. Are you ready for Colonel Pabst Worcestershire sauce? Let's do this. Okay, so on the nose. Mmm. Yeah. Oh. Different. Very different than uh, the Leon Perrins. It's interesting. Leon Perrins was a lot more in your face, where this, like, you can tell has a lot of ingredients in it too, but it's not so apparent. It's not like it's, they're not all jumping out at you at once. 
they're blending together really nicely. The complexity seems baked in in a way that the uh, Lee and Perrins seems engineered, if that makes sense. The Lee and Perrins seems like, all right, well, we need this. Oh, let's go find this exotic flavor and throw it in. This, it seems like there might even be a smaller number of ingredients, but the complexity that each ingredient brings to the table might be much greater than what we're seeing from the, the Lee and Perrins, but uh, it's sweeter on the nose to me. Right. Darker. Right off the bat, I definitely smell that sweet tone. And the vinegar seems a lot more calm, mm-hmm. which is nice. Yeah, and it's it's uh, certainly roasty. It's roasty in a way that, that I wouldn't describe a coffee as being roasty, but but certainly that I would describe a dark beer as being roasty, which sort of fits in with the ingredients that are actually right. in this product. All right, I'm going to take a little taste here. All right. Ooh, that's incredible. Going from the Lee and Parents to this, I mean, it's weird. You can almost taste the, the care that was put into making it. It feels much more welcoming in all of its flavors. The way that they blend together feels mm-hmm. like it it was made with gentle intention, whereas Leanne Perrins was very much so bold and in your face the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like the mouthfeel of this. This is something that we talk about a lot in the spirits and cocktail space is mouthfeel. In spirits, some of that is achieved by things like barrel aging. Uh, There are actually hot sauces that are barrel aged. Shout out to Tabasco. So it's something that can sort of cross genres. Uh, But in the cocktail space, you tend to find mouthfeel in discussions about egg white cocktails where there's that little foam on the top, perhaps fat washed cocktails where you're taking uh, a fat like an olive oil or you know, something like bacon fat, even passing that through a spirit, then getting it out of there. So it, but that it sort of leaves behind a trace of its richness. And here the mouthfeel is just super, super creamy and, and maybe even a little buttery. It's, it's like, I, I get yeah. like a little bit of, uh, like fattiness from this in a way that, um, like maybe I would like to put this on some roasted potatoes, you know? Right. For me, the the most prominent flavor is honestly molasses. I can taste that right off the bat. I'm not sure if like it, that's in all of these batches, but for me, like that's the flavor that sticks out the most. Um, it definitely has a molassesy flavor for sure. Um, and molasses, interestingly enough, um, this is another call out to the spirits world. If you want a light sort of ethereal rum, for example, then you can use pressed cane juice or you can use sugar um, of a sort of lighter variety. Then if you want a slightly darker rum, you go for something like a Demerara sugar. And then if you want something super funky, super deep, then you go for molasses. So uh, I think it's also noteworthy here that what we're seeing with these sauces is the sweetener taste makes a huge difference. And to be honest, when I sat down with these three glasses lined up. I thought there were going to be some marginal differences that I was going to have to really strain to like pick out the nuances, but man, what different flavor experiences. You know, it's crazy because 
these three sauces all sit in the same, you know, aisle. They are in the same family. And on at a surface level, you think that they're going to be so similar. Like you said, you were going to have to really try hard to find differences. But it's very obvious that the careful way that they're crafted or the differences in that and how much of certain ingredients they put in can largely impact the flavor experience that you end up having with whatever meal it's added to right? or drink. So now that we've tasted through three different umami sauces, I wanted to return to what is probably the most interesting, misunderstood, and contentious ingredient in Worcestershire sauces around the world, anchovies. And not just any anchovies, the fermented kind. Now, fermented fish sauces are part of many cultures around the world, but for some reason, they're not really well-liked or well-understood by the American palate. I mean, if Leon Perrins were to market Worcestershire as a fish sauce, I don't think you'd see nearly as many people eager to snatch it off the shelves and add it to their next burger mix or saute. Of course, there are a number of reasons why you might not want stinky fermented fish in your next meal or Bloody Mary, which is exactly why I found recipe developer and food expert Brenda Iyer's article on Worcestershire sauce substitutes so fascinating. If you want to check that out, and you should, we'll have a link to it right on the show notes page. But for now, here's Brenda's take on fish sauce, fish sauce alternatives, and why fermentation is an important process when it comes to establishing maximum flavor. Yeah, so um, ideas generation, I wish that I could take uh, more credit for this part, but this actually came out of a a part of our programming on Food 52 is, of course, based on what people are looking up and what home cooks, the information that they're seeking out. And maybe not strangely, maybe because there are other, there are vegetarians like me who are looking for substitutes or just people that maybe don't necessarily like Worcestershire sauce as it exists, um, who are looking for substitutes. It's actually a highly searched term. So that's where the idea came from. Um, the sort of construction of the article and um, like thinking through of all of the substitutes that I've offered uh, did, it came from, you know, me thinking about my experience and breaking down all of the flavor components of traditional Worcestershire, understanding how each of them are sort of mixed together and incorporated together and um, what kind of dishes you put them into. And then thinking of commonly uh, kept ingredients in home cooks pantries that uh, they could swap out for, um, for Worcestershire. So the way that I thought about it was, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, it, there are salty elements, there are funky elements, there are bitter elements, there's spicy elements, there's, um, yeah, fermented, I think I already said that, um, sweet elements, and, um, but they're all very specific, and they all work together really well. So when I broke those down into five, the five components, I was able to think through what is nearest, like what tastes similar to an anchovy, for example, but is not fishy. Um, but it's similarly briny. And to me, that was, you know, soy sauce. That is, that seems very um, one-to-one um, or, or fish sauce, if you have that around instead. Um, and then I thought, you know, what's similar and kind of um, malty and, and raisiny and molassesy in flavor that people might have around. And, you know, that might indeed be molasses, but that might also be brown sugar. 
Um, and what is similar and kind of vinegary and also a little bit sweet, lime juice was one of those things. Um, so I kind of conceived and you know, what, what's kind of spicy and also vinegary, you could use maybe a hot sauce of some kind. Um, yeah. So I, and also what's funky and fermented soy sauce would again be that. Um, so I think I just, by breaking it down, you sort of, it, it became much more formulaic. Um, of course the, the, um, I guess the funniest thing about Worcestershire, like the sort of urban legend is that nobody actually knows the recipe except for the uh the one chemist working on it at, at a time i'm not i'm not entirely sure i know that it's not it's it's a very um uh, closely kept secret so um of course we'll never know all of the dozens of components that go into it but this is my estimation of you know the five main flavors that it hits um yeah. And one of the things that I really enjoy about this article, well, a couple of things, I, I love how organized it is. Um, and, oh, and I love the fact that in each of your categories, right? So for example, you start off with soy based products, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you've got soy sauce, number one, and then number two is soy sauce and ketchup. And then we go through and we kind of start adding more and more ingredients here. And so mm-hmm. as you progress through each category of substitutes, you kind of end up kind of proceeding in complexity as well. So I, I love that, you know, because by the end by the end of the soy category, we've got number 10, soy sauce, lime juice, blackstrap molasses, garlic powder, vinegar, hot sauce, and granulated sugar. Yeah. I mean, that's multiple acids, right? With lime juice and vinegar, we've got multiple um sweeteners, blackstrap molasses and granulated sugar. So like this is this would be like comparing like the old fashioned cocktail to something like some tiki drink that has 12, 12 ingredients. I mean, they're, they're all going to have some sort of basic balance and basic sensicality. Um, but one is simple and one requires a little bit more adventurousness. So, uh, I really do think that there's something for any type of home cook in this article. Um, were there any surprises as you were, kind of testing out these recipes and figuring out the best way to uh, kind of present them? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was surprised at some of the, at the complexity that some of the simplest ingredients brought truly. Um, soy, soy sauce is, you know, one of my favorite condiments sauces. It goes with everything savory or sweet. It's super complex. It's, you know, very finely crafted. Um, and I was surprised that in a Bloody Mary, for example, which is what I tested the soy sauce, uh, in it, you know, it, it tasted like very close to Bloody Mary's like, but that I've had at you know, fancy restaurants or brunch spots or whatever. And of course there, there is that there's always going to be in a substitute. There's always going to be that sort of thing that you might be missing, but this gets the closest to, um, to the, to the real thing or quote unquote real thing without having to, you know, have the ingredient or, you know, mix together a bunch of stuff. Um, it's very low touch and it is high impact. So I think that's <laughs> things like that, or like the single ingredient swaps, like, um, yeah, oyster sauce, um, even like sherry vinegar, I wouldn't expect to like, I, I, I think maybe I, I don't drink or I don't eat enough sherry vinegar because it is so complex and so tasty and a really great condiment. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that it could occupy the same space as, as such a complex depth 
depth-filled ingredient like Worcestershire. One of the things that's occurring to me as you're speaking and as I'm reading through these substitutes is not only is fermentation or fermenting important, but sometimes there's multiple levels of fermentation, right? With like Mm -hmm. sherry vinegar, uh, presumably this is vinegar made out of a sherry base. Well, guess what? Sherry is a fortified wine, which means you've got the wine which ferments, and then depending on the type of sherry, there's further oxidation, which is not necessarily an additional fermentation, but oxidation is you know, a process that often goes hand in hand with fermentation. And then you take this sherry, you turn it into vinegar, which is another type of fermentation. And, you know, going back to the kind of mythology of Worcestershire sauce, the fermenting of these ingredients seems to be super important because Mm -hmm. in the legend of it, you know, obviously Lee and Perrins, they created this, the, the formulation wasn't that exciting to anybody who tasted it at first. And then after it sat down in the basement of their pharmacy for a certain period of time, the fermentation really brought out the character that makes Worcestershire sauce so special. So I I really think that fermentation is, is a key here. And I don't think it's, it should surprise anyone that things like soy sauce, which is is itself uh, fermented are really amazing substitutes in this space. What do you think about in terms of um, in terms of fermentation and its role in in flavors like these? I think that I mean, and not to use the beer example again, but everything from beer to kombucha to wine to um, yeah, it, to, I mean to kimchi, it, it just it, you take very humble ingredients and very just basically you know cabbage and salt and some pepper in kimchi's case and fermentation adds just such a depth and such a complexity of flavor and such uh, nuance um, from the wild beasts in the environment and from just time. Um, and yeah, lots of bacteria feeding off of each other and creating such amazing flavors. I think that it is very underrated and it, it yeah, things that are not fermented are obviously comparatively quite flat um, mm. in comparison. Um, regular cabbage and salt doesn't taste very, isn't the most exciting thing to eat, whereas kimchi is, you know, a meal unto itself. Um, So I think it can't be underestimated. And yeah, I think some of the, some, in most of these um, suggestions, I've said that like a fermented product of some kind is really important to um, have in here for the exact reasons that you mentioned. It just, it brings that extra flavor So let's say you're the kind of person who's cool with fermentation. And let's say you're also the kind of person who's cool with little fishies donating their delicious flavors and aromas to your Bloody Mary. Here's cookbook author Katie Parla, host of the Gola podcast, to teach us about the ins and outs of anchovies in general and also the legendary sauces and condiments that are derived from them. Let's jump in here and and start talking a little bit about anchovies you've you've um been sort of quoted or have written articles about uh these little fish and um i guess i'm i'm sort of a a very logical sort of step-by-step person when it comes to uh looking at food like this so can we just start with what is an anchovy sure it's a little oily fish um and anchovy is 
a word that describes a category of species, all, you know, most are all related. Um, the anchovies that you encounter in the Tyrrhenian Sea, um, which is the one that uh, butts up against the west coast of Italy, are European anchovies, but there are many, many, many others um, with similar characteristics and flavor profiles, but uh, small differences um, that might uh, influence their size or their color. Um, but I think what most Italian-Americans and Italians recognize is a specific anchovy um, that is used in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. So is it the Tyrrhenian anchovy that you see most often in uh, like Italian markets, et cetera? Yeah, every city has one or multiple uh, fishmonger stalls. Sometimes they're uh, brick and mortar fish uh, fishmongers, and you will see bins of these silvery um, silvery fish, which tend to be very affordable um, and are commonly used in dishes of all sorts. Um, that's in the fresh form, I should say. Every deli or alimentari, as we call them in Italy, would also have salted anchovies. Often next to the register, you'll see a big can or maybe even in a refrigerated um, case, you'll see a big can with the salted fish all sort of like crisscrossed and layered over each other. So you can buy a single salted anchovy if you'd like. Um, and then the other ways you find them are in jars um, under oil, the single fillets that have been preserved in oil after salting. Um, and in fancy places, you're going to find tins of Cantabrian anchovies. So anchovies caught in the Atlantic in uh, off the Iberian Peninsula and processed in a way that has like the most delicate flavor and flesh. But those are fancy mm -hmm. from a certainly from like an economic standpoint. Uh, your average Roman um, is is going to purchase them if they're like really trying to ball out and impress their friends and don't intend to cook them, but just sort of serve them on toast with butter, uh, which really accentuates their texture and flavor. Mm, that's interesting because I think most Americans think of anchovies as sort of a single strain. It's, you know, it's, it's a little salty, stinky fish, uh, at least in, in our social consciousness over here. But it, it's great to hear that there are different types. Um, you know, you've mentioned so far the the Tyrrhenian and then the Cantabrian. Um, those are, I believe, very popular in Basque cuisine, partially because obviously it's, you know, the, the Basque um, regions are, are fairly close to where these fish are harvested. Um, but also, as you mentioned, because, you know, there, there are slightly different flavor profiles between different fish. And, and the reason why that's interesting to me is because uh, a while back I heard a fact that said something to the effect of, and, and, you know, I don't know if this is even remotely true, but the, the things that we know today as sardines have changed in species like several times over the past several decades due to overfishing and, and just due to availability of, of, of different species. So, uh, I, I was I was wondering if there was a similar thing going on with anchovies, and it seems like, at least in terms of geographical availability within different um, ocean environments, it seems like there there is. This is a really interesting topic, and I spent some time with anchovy fishermen and processors in Pichotta, which is this tiny village off the coast of Campania, um, about like a two-hour drive south of Naples, and what they encounter is um, a set of limits that are placed on their anchovy fishing because anchovies are included in this sort of like catch-all list 
of overfished species, or maybe more accurately, because of overfishing, um, European Union and regional relation uh, uh, governments essentially say, for this period, you can't go fishing for these things. Whether they're overfished or not, the fish may, may still end up on that, on that list. Um, and that has to do with a variety of, of reasons. Above all, the 20th and 21st, 21st centuries have uh, seen huge trawlers and sort of industrial fishing replace the small-scale fishing that used to be um, the, the norm uh, dating back literal millennia. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that, that you've been able to shed some light on where anchovies come from and, and sort of how we would encounter them if we were, you know, to, to walk around in a port city in Italy, perhaps. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the American opinion of anchovies because growing up, it was always sort of that yuck factor of like, you know, if you were, if you were ordering pizza as a kid, somebody would crack a joke of like, yeah, let's get anchovies on it. And people would make faces and there would be giggling. Why is the anchovy so revered in European cultures by and large, and just sort of vilified by American palates? Salted anchovies and the oil cured fillets in especially Western European culture, whether it's Spain, Portugal, or Italy, um, are not, don't have the same pejorative connotations because the typical European approach to canning and curing fish was the best stuff would go in the can. That's the stuff that you want to last the longest. And although because of uh, migration from Italy and other parts of Europe uh, to immigration hubs like New York, um, the concept came with people, just like the concept of pizza landed in New York, but then was radically changed in order to proliferate it through the U.S. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the anchovies that you encounter in, among other places, pizzerias, uh, are made from low-quality anchovies that are packed in um, some sort of secondary or tertiary quality oil. Um, and often, if they're even in extra virgin olive oil, which is expensive, so it's rare, uh, that oil has become rancid, either because it's over a year old or it's been stored in a, a hot place. Um, you'll see lots of you'll see lots of uh, uh, pizza ovens in, especially in the East Coast, that are very close to oil cans and condiment jars, and it's like, guys, got to keep the heat away from the volatile stuff. And oil degrades over time. That's why uh, it always makes me laugh when places um, advertise like, we're going to be tasting vintage olive oil from 2017. And I'm like, that stuff went off like two years ago. So you're just trying to get people to eat your old food. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Uh, that is fascinating. It's interesting, uh, especially in the spirits world, we, we so often as Americans... Uh, tend not to look outside of our own cultures. And, and when we do visit other cultures, we realize that, that things that we have here in one product form are so different in other places. There's a different fernet recipe in Brazil, for example, than the type of fernet that we get. There's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of examples of that. And, and it's interesting to encounter it sort of at the, or closer to the produce level, where we're talking about the literal quality of the olive oil and the literal quality of the fish 
both of which are sort of either harvested in, in their own ways. But, um, so yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you for shedding light on that. Um, we've talked about how, uh, these are typically prepared in Italian cuisine. If we were going to be eating these sort of, um, as a, you know, before or after dinner, um, you know, little snack or, um, you know, if we're going to be using them as sort of a, a spread on toast, as you mentioned, or in the Basque uh, tradition as a, as a little pincho. Uh, but what about garum? I'm, I'm really interested in the flavors that arise when we take these fish, this harvested product from the ocean, and then process them, ferment them, and then create a fish sauce. Because I think most people think of fish sauce as an, uh, an Asian ingredient. And um, I, I have a very specific bone to pick with garum, uh, because I have a little conspiracy theory that I'm going to be letting you into here in just a moment. But first, I want to just give our listeners a sense of what garum is, you know, it being listed all the way back in Apicius, this Roman cookbook, um, and, and how it's used in uh, Italian cuisine. So garum, which roughly translates to fish sauce, is part of a, a large category of fermented fish um, condiments. And although the Romans mass-produced this product, um, we can go, like, when in doubt, the Romans didn't invent it, they just mass-produced it. So there are, uh, there's evidence of production of garum in Phoenician culture, um, which far predates the rise of the Romans. We're talking about in Lebanon, North Africa, and as so many things historically, you have things that are um, created, crafted, um, for pleasure in the East and then move through the Mediterranean and up into the Italian peninsula. And this is no different. But for the Romans, garum would have been a uh, liquid obtained by fermenting the viscera, blood, uh, and guts of anchovies. Um, it would have been kept in sealed containers and subjected to heat, often sunlight. And over time, as the contents ferment with uh, the addition of salt as well, um, a liquid either rises to the top of the jar or if the viscera is kept in these sort of baskets, drops through the baskets to the bottom of the, the jar's collection cavity. And that sauce, garum, which goes by a lot of other, a lot of other names too, depending on the Roman historical period, um, would be incredibly uh, concentrated in flavor, very savory, and used as a condiment, a way to accentuate the flavors of some foods um, or to impart greater flavor to others. Um, and it is, it's, it's something that as the Roman Empire and its commerce declines, so does the production of garum because it was really relying on a global economy. Um, and as economics in the late Roman world contract, um, it is reduced to local production until that local production comes to an end in the late Roman period. Mm. And we have a huge gap over a thousand years before what people call modern day garum, Colatora di Alici, uh, is pioneered. And I have to stress that garum and Colatora are not the same. They're in the same universe, but they're not the same condiment. Mm. So tell me about the, col uh, the Colatora. Sorry, give me, give me that pronunciation one more time. Colatura di Alici. Colatura di Alici. Tell me about it. Colatura is obtained by layering 
uh, eviscerated anchovies. So rather than like getting all the blood and guts in the mix, you when you have you ever cleaned anchovies, by the way? Uh, I've cleaned many much larger fish, but not an anchovy in particular. Oh, they're so easy. Pull off, you pull at the head and like all the guts and the heart and all that stuff come out in one piece. Mm. So then what's left over are the fillets. And you layer these in a container with salt um, in the traditional way. And this tradition is, you know, centuries old, not thousands of years old. Um, these are uh, wooden casks. And you layer them with salt. And then you put a weight on top once the layers reach near the mouth of the container. And then over time, and there's this sort of like, I think it's called like enzymatic hydrolysis or something. I can't remember exactly what the what's happening on a molecular level, but the salt is bringing water out of the fish flesh while the fish flesh itself is actually transforming through all of these um, reactions that are happening with enzymes and proteins naturally present in them. And then not water, not strict water, but like the colatura, which is this mixture of, of uh, all these beautiful molecules and things that are in the water being leached out of the anchovies rises to the top. And that is colatora-ish. Okay, what you actually have is the liquid. But you got it has to do the cola. It has to do like the falling part. Cola, mm. colare, um, dripping. Um, so you drill a hole in the bottom of that barrel and then the liquid drips through those layers of salted fish and you collect it at the bottom. And colatora di alici is complete. Mm, that's fascinating. It's all—it's almost the the inverse of what you would do if you were preparing to smoke salmon, and you you know you're you're curing it with with salt and in some cases sugar, and then you're kind of pressing it to get the water out when you smoke. Well, you don't want that water, but it seems like it seems like all that goodness in the colatura di alici is is what you collect, and that then becomes is is it an oil? Does it get blended with oil? Uh, what what is the final form of that? I guess in a shelf stable or cannibal uh, setting. It's a very briny tasting, sort of tannish brownish liquid. Uh, it's thin, not very viscous at all, and it is jarred in small containers and then sold to be used sparingly uh, in things like pasta. You would make spaghetti with garlic and oil and then toss that all up and then drop a few drops of colatora per person uh, into the mixture. And it gives you this like very savory, slightly fishy, decidedly briny flavor profile and aroma. Um, but it's not, it's not something that's used in abundance. Uh, because it is it is potent, Italians do not like overpowering flavors, generally speaking. Um, I mean, to give you an example, like chili peppers are found all over Italy, but the varieties that are cultivated and marketed are the ones that tend to have mild heat. Um, so there's definitely an appreciation for subtle flavors, like this umami-rich colatura. So Eric, I have a question for you. Uh-huh. Do you have any favorite conspiracy theories? Ooh, well, uh, I'm not a big conspiracy theory guy in that I don't like to go down the rabbit holes in a serious way, but uh, I do enjoy sort of spectating as people do the more outrageous ones. So uh, one of my favorites is, is the flat earth conspiracy theory because uh, it's just a weird hill to want to die on. It's, it's like... Mm, 
I don't know. Like I've been on a plane. I've seen the curve of the earth. Like I've, you know, seen the horizon line that I can't see beyond. Like there are certain just experiential phenomena that to me, like kind of just make me okay with understanding that the earth is probably a sphere, but some people just want to die on that hill. And I'm just like, Ooh, like this sort of like get, let's, let's break out the popcorn and watch as this right. develops. So yeah, that's, that, that's mine. How about you? For me? Um, no, that's, that's a very, very entertaining one for me as well. But my favorite is most definitely, um, the birds are actually government issued drones conspiracy theory. Um, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it was true. Um, part of me doesn't want to believe that it's true, but part of me wants to know the truth because nobody just said that for nothing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I I might die on that hill. I might die on the birds are actually government issued drones hill. That's a fascinating one. Uh, it's it's one of the uh, pet conspiracy theories that uh, modern Barkhart co-founder Ethan Hall enjoys uh taking part in as, as a, as a leisure activity. And, uh, one of the things that he always likes to say is, uh, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? Point made. Yep. Um, so anyway, since we're on the topic of conspiracy theories, uh, I thought that I would get into one here involving Worcestershire sauce. Did you ever think that a sauce would be the topic of such a contentious thing as a conspiracy. Absolutely not, but I'm ready to hear it. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a little story. I was researching the origin story of Lee and Perrin's Worcestershire sauce that I read at the beginning of this episode, and I happened to find myself on the website of a little-known historical society in the UK called the Badzi Society. On this site was a biography of Marcus Hill, the third Baron Sandus, who is credited with bringing the recipe for the sauce to Lee and Perrin for manufacturing after having traveled to Bengal, which is the British colonial region that encompassed portions of modern-day India, Bangladesh, and Myanmar. And it was on this website that I ran into a puzzling fact. According to the Historical Society, quote, In the Sandus family considerable archives, there is no correspondence or evidence to prove that Marcus ever traveled to Bengal. End quote. According to the archives, he served in a diplomatic capacity in many European cities, including Madrid, Paris, Venice, Florence, and Lisbon. But there's just no evidence that he set foot in Bengal, and that seems to me to be the linchpin of Lee and Perrin's entire origin story. So I reached out to the Badzi Society, who connected me with Martin Davis, the keeper of the Sandus family archives. He declined to record with me on the podcast, but was kind enough to confirm that Marcus Sandus was indeed the gourmet of the family, and that he left behind a recipe book upon his death. But still no evidence of Marcus Hill, the third Lord Sandus, traveling to Bengal, which means that he wouldn't have likely sampled in person the fish sauces prevalent in Asia at the time. This begs the question, could there be another explanation for the anchovies that do most of the umami heavy lifting in Worcestershire sauce? Here's what Katie Parla had to say on the topic. Are we talking 18th century? We're talking 19th century. I mean, this is not a scientific assessment, but when in doubt, like, probably it's part of like an imperialist impulse to co-opt South Asian co-opt and adapt South Asian uh, food cuisine. 
However, you also have to think like how the salt content of these things made them less perishable than a fresh version. So maybe his buddy went traveling, brought back some cool samples of things. Um, that's another possibility to, to just to throw a little wrench uh, oh. into your theory. I mean, not, not a wrench at all because there is tamarind. In the 17th and 18th centuries, there would have been small, like, marine village-based production of fish sauce, most likely, in Chitara, which is on the Amalfi Coast, but was not part of the the touristic hub of Amal- Amalfi Coast visits. Um, and then in Pichotta, in the Chilento subregion of Campania as well, again, not really, um, not even really fully developed until the 20th century. Um, but, I mean, maybe there's more of, like, a connection. Is there any garlic going on in Worcestershire sauce? Uh, yes, there is. Okay. So, it kind of has, like, some banya cauda vibes. That's a Piemontese uh, dip, for lack of a better word. Um, it's like a sort of puree of garlic and uh, anchovies and oil. And you use it for dipping crudite and cooked vegetables. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like when we don't have documents, we just have to make make some educated guesses or um, push our conspiracy theories. So, not the vindication I wanted. I mean, I was really hoping I could just lob a conspiracy theory out there and have a food expert like Katie say, "Yep, he totally got that idea in Italy." And then I could go to the press and have my revenge on Lee and Perrins and the Kraft Heinz Corporation for snubbing the interview. But alas. The best I can do is say that there's something fishy about Lee and Perrins, and it ain't just the anchovies. I'd like to wrap up this installment of Breaking Bloody by, of course, summing up what we've learned and returning to the Bloody Mary family of cocktails as perhaps the most popular savory or umami cocktail in the world. I think it's managed to retain that status not because tomato juice is delicious, because, let's face it, that's not exactly a given, and not because most vodka is super special, ask any bartender, and not because it's an excellent vessel for outlandish garnishes, but rather because it's a cocktail that serves a very utilitarian purpose as a hangover cure, but also manages to be delicious in the process. Its function is needed, but its form is pleasing, which is not something that can be said for most medicines. The glutamate molecule, the thing that signals the presence of umami, is incredibly important to how humans evolved and formed cultures. It is literally the flavor of roasted meat shared around a communal fire that throws light and shadows on the painted walls of a Neanderthal cave. It satisfies a need for us in a real way. So, if you're trying to perfect your Bloody Mary game, here are a few takeaways I want you to leave this episode with. Number one, umami is best enjoyed with friends. And I don't mean human friends, I mean flavor friends. The reason why Worcestershire sauce is so compelling and complex is because it utilizes acids in the form of different vinegars, spices, salt, and textural elements to create a tapestry of flavor notes that delight the senses. So don't just dump some MSG in your Bloody Mary and hope for the best. Carefully consider what you'd like your source of umami to be, and then execute. A little intention here can go a long way, as we learned from Colonel Pabst. Number two, don't assume that your vegan, vegetarian, or otherwise ethically concerned friends are going to appreciate fish in their Bloody Mary. 
Is this move popular the world over? Yes, otherwise we wouldn't have the Caesar cocktail, which is a Bloody Mary with the addition of clam juice. But it's just not for everybody. That's why we've linked to Brenda Iyer's incredibly thoughtful article on Worcestershire sauce substitutes, many of which are vegan friendly. Think about mushrooms. Think about soy. These things can check your umami box, but also make your friends feel warm and fuzzy that you took their dietary choices into consideration. That's what being a good host is. Number three, if you're thinking about going minimal or eliminating Worcestershire sauce in your Bloody Mary, please make sure you add salt at the very least. This is an ingredient that helps to cure the fermented ingredients in most of these sauces, and so eliminating them from your Bloody Mary is going to mean it will taste undersalted. Think about it this way. As a secret trick, a lot of bartenders keep a very basic saline solution on hand, and they'll just add a couple drops to a cocktail to ramp up the flavor. And the Bloody Mary should really be no different. If you wouldn't undersalt your food, please don't undersalt your brunch time hangover cure. You'll regret it. And finally, the last thing I want you to think about is the opportunity to embrace fermentation on all levels. If there's one thing that I need to think more about following this episode, it's what precisely happens when the microorganisms in our environment are allowed to break down animal protein and vegetable starches and cellulose. Something magical is clearly happening at the chemical level, and our ancestors have found ways to harness it through millennia of trial and error experiments. We benefit from their informal research, but I think there's an opportunity for all of us to try and understand this process more fully. There are differences between fermentation that creates alcohol and fermentation that creates vinegar, for example. Different microorganisms and compounds are at play in both cases. If you want to know what I'll be thinking about in the wake of this episode, it's about all these little things that munch on our food and drink before we do. So if you need me, that's where I'll be. Thanks to all the guests who made this episode possible and to my talented producer, Sarah Baker. If you want to catch up with Brenda Iyer, you can check out her work as the editorial lead for Food 52 or send her a DM on Twitter at Brenda Yesterday. That's B-R-I-N-D-A Yesterday. For more information about Kate Quartaro and Colonel Pabst Worcestershire sauce, you can visit colonelpabst.com and check out their list of retailers that carry the sauce both in the U.S. and Canada. Katie Parla, of course, can be found on the airwaves by searching for the GOLA, G-O-L-A, podcast, or by seeking her out on all social media platforms at Katie Parla. That's Katie with an I-E and Parla spelled P-A-R-L-A. I'm Modern Barkart CEO Eric Koslick, wishing you a delicious and umami-rich foray into your next Bloody Mary project. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. 
And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. Boldly.